And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Toby Moody and Simon Patterson here to have a retro MotoGP chat. Is MotoGP really old enough to be retro? It certainly is, because you have to go back to April 2002 at Suzuka. It's now over 20 years ago since the first MotoGP race. I was lucky enough to be there, and my skin was tingling. It really was. Uh, Simon, when did you get into MotoGP? Uh, I remember watching that first season. I don't really remember watching 500s. Um, all of my two-stroke experience comes from road racing quite a bit later. But uh, yeah, I certainly remember watching Rossi and a Repsol bike. Um, I still, you know, I, anyone that's listened to the podcast for any length of time will have heard me rant on about that Rossi win at uh, at Phillip Island in the second season of five of 990s where he just cleared away from the field after being given a 10 second penalty i remember vividly welcome 2004 and i think i haven't missed many since then on tv yeah quite yeah, quite okay well lots of questions that we've had in from all over the globe and we're gonna go straight into it and straight into the mountains in the tyrol hello valentin simon and toby alex here from innsbruck austria my question is there were a lot of rumors uh, in 2003 uh, of Valentino going to Ducati. Um, how do you think it would have planned out if he would have switched from Honda to Ducati? And second question, if he wasn't around in the years from 2001 to 2005, who do you think would have won the titles and who would have been like the dominator of that era? Greetings and wish you all the best. Servus, Alex. Gross Gott. Well, uh, the rumors about Valentino going to Ducati in 2003, I don't really remember those. There was a there was a bigger rumour that was back in about 07, 08, before he eventually went to Ducati. The, I seem to remember people, Paolo Ianeri, who is still a journalist in the paddock, and he's a he's, he's got a big spoon, hasn't he, Simon? He likes to stir things up, Paolo. <laughs> that is uh, that's Paolo. Paolo. He, he was very, very, very convinced that there was something going to happen. There was apparently an Audi RS6 with blacked-out windows being seen going in back and forth into into Bologna. Whether or not it's true or not, I don't know. Uh, eventually, of course, Valentino did scratch the itch because Simon, he had to. He just had to. Yeah, of course he did. Um, it would have been the ultimate fairy tale. It would have been just the greatest thing that ever happened for an Italian legend to win on a, on a Ducati. And I understand why he would have been certainly interested in doing it around the first time that you said there was the rumours around 07, because obviously at that point no one else had done it. That was before Stoner came along and took the only, amazingly, the only non-Japanese Riders World Championship since 1974, um, which we dug out recently for another feature. Um, could he have done it on that bike? I don't know if it would have been any easier than it would have been on the bike that... He eventually did do it on, but 
we know that whenever Stoner went to Ducati, he was way, way down the pecking order in riders that they wanted. I think he was like sixth preference or something. So it is obvious that they were shopping around at that point. Um, what would have happened if he'd done it? I don't know. I think he'd still have ended his MotoGP career as a Yamaha rider, though. Yes, yes. I think I think whichever era of Ducati he would have jumped on in, in the 800cc era, it, it wouldn't have ended well because, as we now know, there was only one rider who was able to ride it full stop. In the 990 era, yeah, that that, that was still a quick bike. It, it won did the Ducati, off the top of my head, it's sixth ever race. So that's pretty good as a new manufacturer even though they had all the world superbike experience that people like the KTMs never had. Um, Who would have won if Valentino wasn't winning in that era? Well, excuse me. Well, in the first year of MotoGP, uh, Max Biaggi was 140 points behind, so that was a bit of a a rout. In 2003, Seto Gibbonau was 80 points back. In 2004, Seto Gibbonau was only, in inverted commas, 48 points back. In 2005, Marco Melandri, a lot of people forget that he was second in the World Championship. He had a real great end to the season, winning a couple of races, getting on the podium, and he came from middle of the pack in the Championship title uh, chase to second, but he was still 147 points back. Uh, And then, of course, in 2006, the last year in GP, Valentino was only five points back because Nicky Hayden won it. Um... It's difficult. Who would have won? Who would have won? The bottom line is, Sete Gibbonau is the most successful 990cc rider to never win the title. So I suppose there's your answer. I think it's hard to say that Sete wouldn't have been at least one champion, one time a champion in that period. Um, I think if, another, it wasn't if, if it wasn't for VR. I think yeah. another thing that we could probably say with a fair amount of certainty is that Colin Edwards wouldn't have retired from Grand Prix racing without ever having won a Grand Prix. And I think Nicky Hayden's record would probably be a bit better as well. There's arguably a case to be made that if things had been going better for him in 2005 and he was fighting for the championship instead of fighting for second against Melandri, maybe Honda resources would have been different. Who knows? But um, I think Gibbonau is the the sort of the most obvious for for being a, a multiple-time champion in that period and, and probably being promoted into Repsol colours as well. Yeah, and he and he and he rode well. You know, he he. I I, got, I had a lot of time for Sete uh, then. I I kind of supported him because he was the underdog against Valentino. Everybody was on this crest of a yellow wave, yeah. and it was all forty six. I get that, but he gave us did Gibbonau bloody good TV, bloody good sport. You know, I remember he came out of Le Mans. I think he was leading the championship you know wow you know when valentino was in his pomp admittedly valentino was on the gulwars yamaha at the time but he was utterly in his pomp and he was graceful um he had the odd moment gibbonau of a a bit of what's the word playing to the crowd or whatever that bullfighter aspect yeah you know but but you know, yes, he was born into a well-to-do family, exceptionally well-educated, spoke proverbial six, seven languages. Oh, he's, he's, when you speak to him these days, you completely get the impression that he's just far too intelligent to be a motorbike racer. Yeah, yeah, there is that, there is that. Uh, and so therefore, he didn't have to do it. Yeah. Uh, but he did, because he wanted to. And I admired that, I admired and, that. And there's also a thing about Gibbonau that maybe goes unappreciated, that, 
you know, if you compare the previous era of Grand Prix racing, where Dune was cleaning up, um, to the the era that came afterwards where Valentino Rossi was cleaning up, the difference was that Valentino Rossi had a foil. He had a, a nemesis that made, even though it didn't necessarily change the outcome, it made for better entertainment. And and Giberna was arguably the first of those foils to Valentino Rossi, apart from maybe Biagi. Um, but if he hadn't been there, it would have been a very, those years would be remembered quite differently, I think. Very differently. Because they would have been dull. Yeah, and even though Valentino did run away with that first 990cc World Championship in 2002, uh, what did I say? He ran away with a 140-point advantage come the end of the uh, end of the championship. There was something just fun about it. There was something yeah. fun about it. It was this new era. It was this golden time. A lot of people were, were, were anti-four-stroke. Oh, two strokes are the best. <laughs> To a man, they stood on the side of a racetrack and they saw them slide out corners, the new four strokes, and they went, holy moly, look at that. Because it had 220 horsepower instead of 180. And it didn't half light up. I mean, they didn't half go. They were noisy. The electronics were still a bit basic. They were hairy things. And and even, you know, to to sort of link it to the modern era, um, that Giberno rule... It's like the 2019 season where Marquez won by the greatest number of points that anyone had ever won by. But Fabio Cuadraro was fighting him in last corners. Andrea Davizioso was fighting him in last corners. And you don't remember the fact that he had a huge lead because it made for a good season. And that is probably Sete's greatest contribution to the sport. So then, uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, Now let's just pop into the 800 era, shall we? Hello, Toby, Simon and Val. It's Andy here from Hampshire. Uh, Whilst I completely agree with Toby that the 990s were the golden age of MotoGP, my question is about the much maligned 800s and in particular the Ducati GP7, which um, etched in my mind as the angriest sounding bike I've ever seen race sat on the side of Donington. Uh, We all know that on the straight it was like entering a racehorse into a donkey derby, but I've heard stories that in testing the bike was running to an even higher rev limit that the Japanese factories just could not believe. I was hoping that Toby might be able to shed some light on whether this was true or not. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Uh, yeah, the uh, I'm going to disagree with you first off, that the Ducati sounded the best. I think that the early Ducati in 990 sounded the best. That was 2003, 2004. I remember it coming down the, the home straight at Catalonia with the grandstand the other side and the sound can't escape in Barcelona. It just pings off the buildings and then into your, into your lug holes. Holy moly. It was an angry thing. Then it was proper noisy. No wonder it wore the riders out in the shape of Loris and, uh, and Troy Bayliss. But, uh, did it rev more? Probably did. Did they play around? Yes. Did they have the tech? Yes. Um, was it a missile? Yes. You know, it came out of the last corner at Qatar, at Qatar, in second or third place uh, in its first race at the end of the first lap and it got ahead of the the bike in front by the finish line i remember stoney he just piled past i can remember my my disbelief in the commentary look at that or whatever i said and i think we knew there and then on the first lap of the first race of a five-year 800 cc era that it was going to be a missile but of course ultimately there was only one person that could ride it yeah, I mean, it's all well and good having a bike that's amazing, but if you don't have an amazing rider on it, 
and I think Ducati probably learned a harsh lesson in the process about how you need to treat the, the most fickle part of any motorcycle is the guy sitting on top of it. Um, if they had treated Stoner better, um, if they had taken him more seriously when he was complaining about illness and when he was trying to return from injury, would he have stayed more? Would he have won more titles with them? I mean, it's hard to argue, isn't it? But such as bike racing. Yeah, they had big budget in those days, of course. You know, Philip money. Morris, Marlborough, they were pouring the money in. They were being successful, and it's a darn sight easier to get budget for the year after when you're so successful. They nearly, they nearly, they did, in my view, nearly win the last year of, of 990s Ducati this is. Caparossi, Gibbonau, huge crash at the first corner in Barcelona in the, in the June middle of the season. Caparossi only then lost the championship by 25 odd points, 27, whatever it was, not, not that much. And yet he missed a load of, a load of races in the middle of the season. So 2006 may well have been a, 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 a Hayden Rossi, Caparossi showdown come Valencia. They were still there. They did have some bad luck, but uh, yeah, they had some budget. Holy smoke. And, and it's, it's kind of the nature of changing the rules as well, isn't it? It upsets the pecking order and it allows someone to get ahead. Um, it's not an unusual thing to see it happen. Um, we, we actually quite surprisingly didn't really see it, did we? Whenever we went to control, whenever we switched to Michelin and went to the control electronics. But maybe that's because Mark Marquez was already dominant and he just kept being dominant. But um, I think, yeah, Ducati put the right rider in the bike at the right time. I've had to look it up. Loris Caparossi, after that Catalonia crash in 06, sure, he didn't finish that race. My mind plays tricks on me. He did do the next race. It was in Assen, but he finished 15th. Now, we all remember how tough a cookie he was, and for him to just scrape across the line in 15th position, that's... That's about it, you know. Uh, you know, if he was fit, he would have been further up, and he actually only was twenty-three points off the championship victory. So, yeah, um, it, Donington, the race after, he was in ninth position, and then he got into his stride again, and he was fifth, and he was he finished every single race that year, Di Caparossi, except for that Catalonia thing. Anyway, if buts and what's, if buts and what's. Thank you, Andy. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.
Hi guys, Cosmin from Romania here, huge fan of the show since its inception and I have uh, a couple of questions regarding the 2002 season. First of all, why were the factory teams the only ones to use the new 990cc bikes and while the customer teams were still on the 500s, was it due to the new bikes being too expensive or was it due to the factories not having enough time to build uh, more bikes? Uh, and also, why did Dorna allow such a hybrid uh, model? Because from a fan perspective, the the 500cc bikes did not stood a chance on uh, tracks with a huge straight like Mugello or Catalonia. They were only competitive on tracks like Assen or Zaxenring. And uh, the last one, uh, how do the factories decided which riders get to be upgraded to the factory spec like Honda did with uh, Kato and Baros? Was it performance related? Was it again, uh, which team has the budget to get the upgrade? Thank you and keep up the good work. Uh, good questions. Thank you. Um, uh, let, let's split this both ways, shall we, Simon? Um, that Suzuka 2002 race, which was the first race of, of MotoGP, uh, there were only seven regular four-stroke MotoGP bikes on the grid that day, plus two wildcards. Uh, two Repsol Honda V5s, one Honda wildcard, one Aprilia, two Suzuki regulars, one Suzuki wildcard, and then two Yamahas. So only nine four-stroke bikes. <laughs> it, 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 the mind plays tricks, I always seem to remember more but they had to fill it out with two strokes because otherwise there wasn't a grid it was very similar simon to to, to the crt scenario that they had kind of 10 years later exactly my, my favorite story from that day is that the race was almost won by a suzuki wildcard on dunlops uh, on dunlops yeah <laughs> um on a four stroke um yeah it, it's exactly like the crt situation you you have to remember that the factories so there was a huge change going on in the factories. And it's not a case of going from a 2018 model to a 2019 model. They tore up everything they'd been doing because everything prior to that had been an evolution. So things like making fairings, which is you know normally not a huge difference from last year, would have been completely new. Um, things like engine parts didn't just require a new parts to be made they required new castings to be made for the parts there was a huge amount of work to be done on all these race departments but i'd say with a large amount of of certainty that none of the racing departments hired many more people to come in for one year only to do the work so you've got the same amount of staff trying to produce twice the amount of parts essentially because they're still supporting some 500s as well so uh the CRT analogy is the perfect one, Toby. They they did what they could to make sure that they had a full grid. And as soon as new bikes were available, um, they, they arrived on the grid. Because I think by the end of the season, quite a few people, certainly who'd started in Honda NSRs, had switched over to RC211s by the midpoint of the season. Exactly. And that was after the summer break. It was after the Suzuka 8 hours. So by the time we got to Brno in the Czech Republic, Dijira Kato, who'd moved over from a, an NSR 500 V4 two-stroke to a V5 four-stroke. Same colours, different bike. Uh, at the end of the season, we went to Mategi. Barros went up to a V5, rode it for the first time on Friday morning, won the race on Sunday. That will never happen again. I mean, how can you do that? Because he was on the crest of a wave, and everybody who jumped on a V5 at the time went, blimey. 
how could I even compete on an NSR 500? That was a hell of a thing when it's not even machine gun in a knife fight. It's machine gun in a catapult fight. <laughs> but it, it's it's worth noting that some of the 500s and some of the tracks did do all right. They did. We went to Saxon Ring and... He nearly won a race. Olivier Jacques was there. Got knocked off by his teammate, wasn't it? Barros, uh, if memory serves. They nearly, nearly, nearly did it. It was just about to happen, but it didn't quite. So that was unfortunate, to say the least. Um, But, yeah, that would have been the day that it all... Just that tick in the box. Just that that one-off. But, yeah, they, they... remember that let's just go back a couple of years it was at suzuka so the april 2000 that the announcement came we're going to four strokes so that was the public announcement so with the powers that be they will have arguably have decided in 1999 this is what we're going to do so they had quite a bit of time to prepare themselves and this is not honda going oh we need to make a four-stroke engine where do we start they got all the tech from uh, RC30, RC45, RC51, you know, all that kind of thing. So the tech was there, the Formula One tech, uh, Yamaha tech. They were also being successful in World Superbike. Aprilia, they went a bit left field and went, right, let's go and get some Cosworth knowledge in. Uh, Suzuki, they, yes, they did well in their first race. They had a, They had a podium, but it was wet and it was a bit... It was a bit wild card, literally. Um, Dunlop's worked well at Suzuka, and um, and then and then the, 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 it all shook into place, and everybody then had a full grid. Um, yeah. Uh, the second part of your question: factory riders, how are they upgraded? Well, I think the answer to that, Simon, never changes. Same now as it was then. Exactly. Just look at the the order in which the Ducati guys have been given upgrades over the last few years. Um, the Honda guys have got factory bikes and satellite teams. It's performance. More than anything else, it's performance. Um, finances might play a little bit of a role in it, but for a factory like Honda, especially a factory like Honda in the days of cigarette money, when budgets were you know just left blank in the form, um, it went to the guys that were going to perform on them. And and to be fair, you know the the Barrow story is the perfect example of why it worked as well. They give a 500 or they give a, an RC211 to someone that was performing at a 500 and he won his first race on it. Decision proved. <laughs> it's still great to see it. Won his first race on it. Third day on the bike. I mean, it's just, he's a boy. He's a good lad. He's a good lad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good times. Good times. So, uh, yeah. Thank you, Cosmin. Great question. Hi, guys. Um, my name is Elliot and I'm from China, although I am calling in from Chicago. I've only very recently gotten into MotoGP through the F1 to MotoGP and other motorsports pipeline, but I'm a pretty avid lover of the historical side of F1, and I want to get to know more about MotoGP history. My question is, what recommendations do you guys have for people who want to learn more about the historical side of MotoGP? What should we be reading or watching or listening to? And also, what are the best races or your favorite races um, from the past that we as like new people to the sport should watch or you know definitely can't miss out on thank you guys so much for all the great content i really really enjoyed learning more about the sport through this podcast and yeah thank you guys so much 
That's an international question, if ever there was one. Um, America, China, and here we are recording. This is a worldwide show. Um, you go first, Simon. Where would you point Elliot to for catching up on MotoGP history? I, I think you're actually very lucky, Elliot, if you want to learn about this era of MotoGP history, because it's the golden era of MotoGP documentaries. Uh, Mark Neal's series, Fast, Faster, I think there was a fastest. There was the the doctor, the Kentucky kid, and the uh, the tornado. The, the doctor, the tornado, and the, the Kentucky the tornado DTK. and the Kentucky kid. <laughs> yes. Uh, so all all of those are actually available now in a few streaming sites. Um, I think they're in Amazon Prime. Um, so you can go back and watch them all. And they will give you good insights into particular seasons. Beyond that, there's actually not been an awful lot written about those eras of, of about that early era of racing yet because i think it's it's in that weird gray area where it's not quite old enough yet to be for people to be writing about it um but there are a few good writer autobiographies uh there's a good casey stoner book that describes the era there's a good valentino rossi book that describes the early era in great detail um i'd go i'd go start with start with that really but i can't actually think of anything by sort of a, a paddock journalist that I'd send you towards. Well, well, you might have fallen into a bit of a hole there. Um, let's do the, the movies first. Yeah, Simon tried about uh, faster films. Uh, that was 2000, 2001. Go to com, and there's all the films up there. Uh, Simon, Motor Course. Don't forget, yeah. you need to go to all the, 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 all the books, uh, Elliot. You need to get on eBay, buy a motor course from that era. They're not a lot of money. The official MotoGP review book that Julian Ryder made, uh, the motor course book that at the time that was edited by Michael Scott, the Bible. That's it. That's the, that's the physical Wikipedia. If it's not in the book, it didn't happen. Um, same for Julian. He used to beetle off to his hotel room and write up bits and bobs. Maybe he'd, he'd leave the bar early and, and just do half an hour on the book. You know, you have to do a little bit by little bit. Uh, Neil Spaulding's MotoGP Tech gives you a complete insight from the beginning of MotoGP up to a couple of years ago, uh, two, three editions of it, MotoGPTechnology.com. Um, so there's, there's still stuff out there on on eBay that you can uh, you can hoover up uh, and of course those those faster films are, are excellent as well. For me that 2006 season is still the best. Get that on DVD. Um download it somehow do uh, what you want. The motogp.com if you subscribe to the video pass to watch the current season you can watch every season back to 1993 every session. Glorious. Blimey. <laughs> and, and I'll be on there somewhere then. <laughs> yeah, as I was about to say, with your dulcet tones commentating on some of it. I'll, I'll be, yeah, yeah. But for some reason they didn't, and this is mildly annoying because uh, it would just be nice to go back and hear how Dennis and I interacted with Randy. But I did I did it working for Dorno in 96, 7, 8, 9, so that's four years. But they never recorded the commentary. We did a, well, I, we, we, they were long gone. We did a, uh, the team, which is me, we did a, uh, a highlight package on a Sunday night, very late into a Sunday night. So sometimes you see or you, you get these packages on MotoGP.com and the commentary, I'm really sorry, but I was really tired and it wasn't <laughs> live and it was revoiced and 
I'm embarrassed and I don't want to even think about watching them again, but I was just worn out because I'd be voicing them at 11, 12 o'clock on a Sunday night. I've run out of gas at that point. But um, the DVDs, uh, yeah, Julian and I did a few for Duke Marketing, the official DVD. We, we, we came here to my house and sat here for a day and a half and we'd script a hour and 50, two-hour DVD because it really did take that long. And then we'd go to a studio locally and, and voice it. It was uh, a lot of work, but got to get it right as well. But the books are out there. The books are out there. Um, in terms of specific races to go back and watch, uh, for me, Phillip Island 2003, that Valentino Rossi win I was talking about, uh, Velcom 2004, obviously, um, basically the entire 2006 season, but definitely Estoril and Valencia. Um, Casey's first race at Ducati, 2007. That's another one that's worth watching, the first race of the 800 era. Um, I'm trying to think of others that stand out from that era, but there was a lot of good racing and it's hard to sort of dial into a few specifics. Mm, good times, good times. And uh have to pinch myself. I was lucky enough to be at all of those that you just mentioned. God, dear, oh dear. <laughs> uh, Hey-ho. So uh, great question, Elliot. I think you've got something to go on. Hi, this is Elisa from Finland. And I have a question for the retro show of the race MotoGP podcast, so to speak. And maybe the question is not so much retro, but <laughs> ancient, considering the time frame. Um, I was looking to find information on this, but I didn't find anything. And I wanted to know how long has the MotoGP World Championship been televised and shown across the world? And before all of this racing was televised, how did people used to become fans of the sport? Did they follow it just through radio shows or did they just go to a race once a year, a local race? Or how did it gain such a big fandom regardless, even though it wasn't televised and shown around the world, considering it's not like a local sport, similar to hockey or something like that? Thank you for the podcast. Hope you're having a great summer holiday. Kitos, Elisa. Kitos, Uva. Um, well, it's uh, it's not that ancient. Uh, Dorna got hold of the Grand Prix Motorcycle World Championship uh, with a commercial head-on, and they got hold of the rights. They purchased those rights, and they continue to purchase those rights off the FIM. Um, they got hold of that in 1991. Uh, before then, fans were following the races, not only trackside, but it was big in Italy. So it was on Rai television in Italy. It was on TVE in Spain. Famous commentator in Spain called Valentin Ricana. Uh, he was the voice of, of Grand Prix motorcycle racing for, for decades. The BBC in the UK would show the odd race and when a Grand Prix would go to a country, maybe it would be live, maybe it would be just that one-off highlight package on the, on the Sunday evening. But it was, as always, Simon, the heartland, Italy and Spain that were showing the Grand Prix pretty regularly and pretty well live from the, from the early 80s, hazarding a guess. Yeah, uh, and also whenever you look back through those days uh, at attendance figures, they were colossal, like people... Because they couldn't watch on TV, people went to their home race. There's, I think there's like Saxon Ring crowds of 250,000 people on a Sunday um, compared to like the 100,000 they get now. And that was pretty much universal across the board. 
even even going even further back um i did you know we traveled quite a bit with the legend that is nick harris um when i first came into MotoGP, and nick talks about going to the cinema and there would be Pathé highlight reels from the Isle of Man TT on before the feature film. Uh, and that's how they watched, you know, in the days before people even had TVs at home. Um, so there's always been a way to see moving pictures of it, I guess, because that's the early 50s we're talking about. That's the, the very, very early stages. And there's still cameras being sent to Grand Prix Racing to record it and show the highlights. Once Dorna got hold of it in the early 90s, they then got it onto Eurosport. So a pan-European channel, it was Iceland to Moscow to Israel to Agadir. That was the kind of footprint that, that Eurosport had. And you could choose the language that you wanted to listen to. And if you didn't have the language that you wanted to listen to, then you got stuck in English. Sorry about that. But you had to listen to to, 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 to Dennis I or Peter Clifford before I turned up and Randy and then Julian and I and all sorts. Uh, but the thing, the key aspects of getting Grand Prix motorcycle racing onto Eurosport was that everybody on that massive footprint, millions nearly billions of people you could build up the brand of grand prix motorcycle racing and then once you built the brand up in you know france with nowadays let's say quateraro you could then go to france television a national broadcaster and go right you need to buy it and they go yeah okay we'll get lots of it and they'd make donna would make more money from an individual country broadcaster um than just one that covered the whole of Europe. So they'd sell it not once to Eurosport, but 20 times to all the countries in Europe. Which is arguably something that they perhaps need to be looking at doing again for a few years these days because we've got into a, a, a zone of pay-per-view TV now where audience figures are plummeting because it's behind a paywall. And maybe there's an argument for going back to that model of promoting riders, promoting it nationally and seeing what happens. Um, I think we're going to see a real upset in the market over the next few years as streaming services take over from TV channels. But wouldn't it be great to see a new era of fans being able to access MotoGP because the rights go to, say, Amazon across the world instead of Eurosport across Europe? You're absolutely right. Uh, I'm a huge advocate of rights holders to a sport, the people who own a sport, having their own streaming app and you can access that wherever you are in the world. Uh, I, I, I subscribe to, 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 to MotoGP.com, to the app there. I watch the televisions through there, the, the, the races through that, uh, that portal. Uh, I've seen how Formula One run their app. Even though it's geo-blocked in the UK, I've had access to it. It's beyond exceptional. It is beyond exceptional. We've all pretty well now got a super fast connection. It's slow if you've got 60 meg download nowadays. A lot of other countries got, you know, 100 plus, 200, 300. 5G's coming in. 6G will be here. So now the connectivity is there. In theory, all you'll ever need is MotoGP.com, the MotoGP app, and then you choose your language. And in theory, if they have 20 commentary booths trackside and 20 different languages, Simon, you just press a button for whichever country or whichever language you want to listen to. That, in my eyes, is is the is the dream. Exactly. And it's what other sports are already doing. Um, 
I'm a massive cycling fan and, and GCN have partnered up with Eurosport to deliver exactly that. That's the package they deliver now for their Grand Tour coverage. Um, so Dorna will follow suit eventually. It'll become more accessible and hopefully that means we've got more and more people to share our sport with. Yeah, we will see. We will see. Anyway, uh, Kitos Elisa. Okay, we go from, uh, well, right up north to right down south. Hi, gentlemen. This is Greg from East London in the Eastern Cape province of South Africa. Um, before I ask my questions, I just wanted to thank you for the great podcast you put on each week of the MotoGP season. Uh, I really enjoy the debates that you have when discussing the hot topics of each week and the views that you can give us from behind the scenes, as normally we only get to see the view through the camera lens on the MotoGP weekends. Uh, so the first of my two questions is whether or not you ever th- think there will be a possibility of a repeat achievement of the likes of John Surtees where he was 500cc and then Formula 1 world champion um, and if not do you think that past and present MotoGP stars have what it takes to become winners and champions on four wheels in four wheel series um, I have a good example of how two wheel rally raid Dakar superstars like Stefan Pedahansel, Mark Comer, and Annie Roma moved from two to four wheels with great success. Um, then the second question uh, comes from the, seeing the wonderful photos of the legendary 500cc champions of Kenny Roberts, Wayne Rainey, Kevin Schwantz, as well as McDoon at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. And the question is, um, what was the reason that made those American riders so successful during that era? And why, apart from Nicky Hayden, have we not seen any uh, American champions since? I look forward to hearing your insights on these questions. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. Uh, John Surtees, 500cc world champion and then Formula One champion in uh, 64 in the one and a half litre era, that four wheel crossover. They knew it was very unique then. I wasn't around, but friends of mine were, and they just knew that it was it was a bit of a one-off. Uh, can it happen again? It's the commercialism, isn't it? It's just the sheer size and size of everything to do with crossing over to four wheels nowadays. The money, the commitment, the expertise it takes to even drive a Formula 2 car, let alone win in Formula One World Championship is quite something else. Uh, Peter Hansel, Coma, Roma in Rally Raid, that's not quite comparing apples with apples. You know, that element in Rally Raid and winning the Dakar is is as much to do with navigation as it is actual driving. Uh, let us also not forget Wayne Gardner, 1987 500cc World Champion. He finished third at Bathurst on four wheels. He raced at Le Mans in 1998, got on the grid. Uh, He won races in Japanese Super GT. It was called the Japanese GT Championship at the time. He also raced a BMW M3 in the DTM in the orange Jägermeister colours. The car has actually recently been restored by some guys up in Norway. It is just exceptional. Uh, Valentina Rossi, he drove a Ferrari. Bit of a PR thing it was. So did Max Biaggi. Uh, Rossi drove a Subaru in the World Rally Championship Rally in New Zealand at the end of 06. Uh, He's in uh, GT racing at the moment with Audi. He's in the Spa 24-hour race this coming weekend. 
Ideally, would he want to go to Le Mans? You'd have to think so. Will he get in the Ferrari new LMDH hypercar that has just been teased in recent days? It would be great PR to do it. Um, but ultimately, you've got to stack up. It's all about numbers, isn't it? For me, the, the thing that makes the difference, the thing that makes means it'll never happen again, is taking nothing away from the likes of Surtees, but the professionalism. Um you saw, you know, we saw guys like, let's take Hunt and Sheen, for example. You know, Barry famously had a hole drilled in his helmet so that he could have a smoke in the slowing down lap. <laughs> no one in MotoGP smokes anymore, at least when they're not having a beer or two off season, because that's a disadvantage. Um, you have to be so committed to every single waking minute of your day uh, in order to be as competitive as as you can, because the, the series is so close, and I think that alone means that it's very very difficult to be a crossover star now. You have to ride a motorbike from when you're six years old and spend your entire wake, you know, your entire life focusing on becoming a MotoGP world champion, and and to make the switch over is just beyond difficult. Um, there will be a few who dabble, I'm sure. Um, there's a whisper doing the rounds at the minute that Fabio Quattararo will get a chance to jump into Mercedes F1 car at the end of the season as a little thank you from from sponsor Monster. But uh, I can't see him heading off to do a Formula 1 season anytime soon. Um, yeah, there, there, there will be a chance for guys like that to step down a level or two and be competitive in, in cars like we're seeing from Valentino Rossi like we've seen from you know uh, I think Davizioso is at a DTM wild card uh, Pedroza is doing that uh, Lamborghini one make series at the minute um, Lorenzo Porsche Jorge Lorenzo's racing in Porsche Cup in Italy the, the, they'll always play with it because you can be competitive in lower tiers of car racing long after you can be competitive in a motorbike in a MotoGP season so mm. they'll always dabble with it but at F1 level mm. nah I just can't see it spin in a car flat spots four tires a spin on a bike you go straight to hospital and it hurts. exactly yeah so it's night and day uh, second part of your question Greg uh, Roberts Schwantz Rainey the US riders why were they so good? Well, dirt tracking, flat tracking was just so big in the 70s and the 80s. It was, and still is in my mind, the coolest thing out there. <laughs> it's awesome. If 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 you ever get the chance to get to one, do it. Because they're just, something like a, a proper mile is just incredible. They're, they're, yeah. And, and what it meant was that when those guys came to Grand Prix racing, they did it with a completely different approach, a completely different skill set, completely different way of riding the bike that just gelled really well with the 500 two-strokes that Grand Prix racing were racing at the time. And they left the Europeans for dead because they were able to do things differently and, and better. And, and eventually the Europeans caught up and learned how to ride a bike the way the Americans were riding a bike and it, it balanced itself out. But there was a golden opportunity and, and the US riders made the most of it. And arguably it's Nicky who was the last one to do it. Absolutely, because he's the one that came with that background. Yeah, and as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, those early V5s, he came in the second year of the V5. His first race was uh, Suzuka 03. You know, the electronics were uh, was still the rider's brain. Yeah. They were there, but they weren't as clever as the rider's brain, and he had that skill to, to manage it. And uh, it, it, it isn't quite 
the it doesn't quite get the same attention um, as American flat track racing. But I, I once interviewed Chad Reed, the the uh, Supercross legend, and he told me about how when he was racing flat track as a teenager. There was this kid coming up through the ranks who lived a few streets over from him and everyone said he's going to be the next big thing because he had the same skills uh, and he was called Casey Stoner. So we, we don't necessarily think of, of Australian flat track the same way as we do as American flat track, but same skills. And, and again, the first rider in a year where the bikes, as we said at the start, maybe weren't as refined and needed a bit more rider feel because it was the first era of the 800s. Mm, absolutely yes no that's a very valid point and i'm embarrassed not to to mention casey in that the the, the same breath as a roberts a schwantz and a rainy because it was his dad colin who used to shout at him and say keep your feet on the pegs don't put your inside <laughs> foot down a la speedway keep your feet up and then it's harder but if you can manage that then you've got a a, a greater innate skill, haven't you? So, uh, and, and Aussie flat track is even wilder than American flat track because while America gets some ranger in the summer, Australia gets none. So they they lubricate the track with used engine oil. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, another world. <clears throat> it's another world. So uh, so yeah, there you have it, Greg from East London. Didn't they used to build Land Rovers in East London, South Africa? I'll have to go and look that up. Okay, then. From East London, we now go to London. Hi, all. Um, my name's James from London. Um, I've got a question about Daijiro Kato. Um, I came across him when watching some old MotoGP footage from the early noughties, um, and I'd never heard of him. I looked him up and found out that um, he tragically died in a crash in Suzuka um, at the beginning of the 2003 MotoGP season. Um, but then looking at his um, history, it looks like he was actually a really promising rider. He was spectacularly successful in 250cc. He dominated the 2001 World Championship there. And um, in a way, his junior career looks like it was even more successful than some of the recent world champions that we've had. Um, and he had a really promising career in front of him. But it also looks like he's almost been forgotten as a rider by the history books. So are you able to tell me um, about uh, what Daijiro Kato was like as a rider um, and any highlights that stand out for you from his career? Thank you. Thank you, James. Uh, absolutely not. Daijiro Kato has been forgotten. Absolutely not. There's still a lot uh, that you see of Daichan. He's kind of nickname his short name around the paddock a lot of stickers flags tattoos on mechanics who worked with him uh tattoos on arms of you know the showy uh, helmet technician who's still around in the paddock as you say tragically lost his life in in suzuka 03 um yeah uh, not at all forgotten he was a very gentle soul he was a very quiet man he was small in stature but as you say quick in speed having uh, been successful in the world championship in 250 uh, he turned up as a wild card even before he got into the world championship full time and at suzuka and he'd wipe the floor with everybody they were they were good races very gentle soul to the degree i didn't really interact with him because his english was was so basic and so little um terrible story he he had the accident at suzuka there was then a weekend at home and then we went to south africa for the next race 
And I remember getting to the paddock, was it on a Wednesday? And I was with Tom O'Kane, who's who then was was he with Roberts? He's now with Suzuki, yeah. doesn't matter. And and he didn't know. He didn't know that, that Daijiro had died only a couple of days before because we'd all been on planes and time differences with Japan and the look in his face and it was quite upsetting. And then for the Grassini team to then race that week at South Africa was hard enough and Sete won the race. Uh, the teammate to the man who had just lost his life in the race before went and won the race. I don't know if anybody's got that commentary that Julian and I did, but there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It it just... If ever somebody's soul and passion won a Grand Prix, it was Sete Gibbonau winning it for his teammate. He stood on the pegs, he pointed to the sky, and I remember Gr uh, Fausto Grassini, who, of course, is also no longer with us, just nobody knew what to do. It was a fairy tale that was befitting the loss of a great man. And let's not forget the the horribly tragic story of Grassini Racing, that the exact same thing happened in 2011 in Valencia, when Michele Pirro won the Moto2 race just after Marco Simicelli's death. Um, it's very, very fair to say that, that Deshiro Kato ain't forgotten in the MotoGP paddock. Um, I think every Japanese rider still wears a 74 somewhere in their leathers. Um, I know that, that Takanakigami has one. I know that Ayagura has one. Because all of those guys have come up through the, the Honda Asian Talent Program, which is headed by Hiroshi Ayama, who was good friends with Kato, who, you know, the, they have never forgotten him. And if you ever go to Misano, where the uh, Grissini team was based at the time, you will drive into the circuit on the Avenue de Gerakato, um, which is a lovely touch. Um, so, no, I, I, I absolutely think it's it's fair to say that he's not forgotten. But if we go back to the conversation we had at the very start of this podcast um, and add another what if into the, the multiple factors that we were already discussing, if Valentino Rossi had never been around and if that crash hadn't happened at Suzuka in 03, I think there's a fair chance that Deshiro Cato would have been a world champion. Um, I think even with Valentino Rossi around, Cato would have made a mark, a much, much bigger mark than unfortunately he had time to do in the sport because I think everyone was in complete agreement that there was just oodles and oodles and oodles of talent in the boy. Now let me read something to you off, um, off wiki because I looked it up and I didn't know this had happened. During the 03 Suzuka 8-hour race, Honda paid tribute to Kato. Now, this is in the year that he lost his life. And, and just as a caveat, let's not forget that the Suzuki 8-hour is the single most important motorbike race of the year, especially the Japanese factories. And Honda paid tribute to Kato by bearing his racing number on the Sakurai Honda bike with Okada and Kamea. But unfortunately, they crashed early on in the race, together with the same bike of Nikki Hayden and Atoshushi Watanabe. Now, Okada and others returned to the pits with their broken bikes, but Okada was permitted to go back out with a spare bike, which is not really allowed, but as a mark of respect but was then ineligible to win because his original bike was obviously damaged. Two hours later, Taddy returned to the pit lane to retire the bike amid mass applause from the crowd. 
at the end of the race, the other Sakurai bikes of Nakumi and Kamada, who were still in the race, went to the rostrum to show off Kato's helmet bearing his number on the visor and a photo of him on his bike as a mark of respect. Yeah, it's... Uh, it, 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 you know, you got to look at it from a Japanese point of view, don't you, Simon? He was their golden boy. He was the one who was finally going to win the top-class Grand Prix Motorcycle World Championship title. He was the one. They tried, got close, won races. Hang on a minute, he's the one. And then they lost him. And it's it's Senna-esque in Japan. Almost, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and, and, you know, we're Honda are still looking for that rider. Japan. 20 years later, they still haven't found him. Japan is still looking for that yeah. rider. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The sport is as a whole, the world is. Mm -hmm. But uh, they will, they'll find one. There will be a Japanese MotoGP world champion one day. So, James, I hope that uh, puts you in the picture. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Meanwhile, let's go a little bit closer to home for Simon. Hi, guys. Phil from Northern Ireland here. Love the podcast. Really good listen every week. Um, so I was uh, playing the MotoGP game there. You do the 2009 season. Um, it was one of the episode is Casey Stoner uh, it got me thinking Casey, we missed out Casey fighting with the likes of Marquez um, obviously Marquez is probably the most talented rider we've seen recently but at the height of their powers who do you think would come out on top both in the same machinery Casey or Mark um, cheers Hi Phil, thanks for the question. Um, good to hear a, a caller calling in with an accent that's quite similar to mine. I'm assuming you're not too far down the road from me. Um, I I think if we'd been able to see a Marquez versus Stoner, we probably wouldn't have seen Mark Marquez win a title in his rookie season. And we wouldn't have seen a Mark Marquez that was as dominant over the, the long run. But I think we would probably have still seen a multiple times world champion Marquez because we, we saw time and again through the, through his, his sort of history in the sport that Stoner was sublime. He was incredible. He could do things in a motorbike that no one else could do, but he perhaps wasn't necessarily a big fan of the, the real scrappy, aggressive contact, bashing, fairing, fighting that, for me, is the hallmark of Mar Marquez's career. And I think that Marquez would have, I don't want to say intimidated Stoner into taking titles off him, but he would have he would have upped the game to a level that Stoner would perhaps have not been comfortable playing at. Um, he wouldn't it, have liked it. No, he, he wouldn't. would not have liked They would have had a big argument. Oh, yeah, they would. It would have been, it would have been played out in the media dramatically. 
Um, and would have been even better for the the fact that they would probably have been teammates at the time. <laughs> um, it would it would definitely have made Lorenzo Rossi look quite tame in comparison, I think. Or or, or Laguna Rossi Stoner very tame as well. But yeah. Casey, that is the racing. This is the racing. Yeah, but but let's let's not forget that all of those moments, um, like the Laguna one, Stoner came off the worst from them. He did, and and I think against Marquez, that would have played out in Marquez's favour. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. I didn't need long to think about that. Uh, it would have been good. I mean, as you say, Casey was a was a cleaner rider. He didn't do over white lines, fairing bashing. They hadn't invented track limits in those days. It was, well, if you're upright, whatever. You know, <laughs> Valentino didn't get a penalty for Hereth last corner. Oh, five... Um, he didn't get a penalty. Yeah. Even, even a lot of people that night in the press office were like, well, we're going to get an email in a minute. Yeah. I kind of know why we didn't get an email, but to me, it was... The- <laughs> Has it anything to do with the fact that we're still watching that clip and repeat? Yeah. 15 years later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, yeah, it was good for the sport. Yeah, it was a bit of drama, but, you know... <laughs> It was a bit whatever. Um, and unfortunately, I did feel sorry for, for, for Seta Gibbonau that day because he got punted off the track and there was no recourse at all. No. I'm not saying we should have a penalty for every time somebody even looks at someone else on the track. We've got to race. It isn't flower arranging. Let's grow up here. But... <laughs> yeah. It was good for I, TV. I, I, <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, I think... Casey Stoner was a surgeon and Mark Marquez is a butcher. They both cut meat for a living, but one gets it done a bit faster. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good line. That's a good line. That's a good line. Uh, yeah. Uh, we we uh, we certainly missed out on something there. Sure, we had Valentino versus Mark Marquez, but it wasn't so... F- it, was, it was a sad end to the story, not a... Yeah. Not a Laguna kind of story. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, it ended. There's still a bitter taste. A bit, yeah. It's just a mess. Uh, there wouldn't have been a yeah. Stoner, Stoner, and and Marquez would have hated each other in the way that Rossi and Stoner hated each other, but are now happy to joke around and shake hands. Well, that's called time as a healer. Yeah, exactly. But that'll never happen with the Marquez Rossi camps. Mm. And and maybe that's the difference. We we would have had an absolutely furious rivalry, but I think five years down the line, they would have said, all right, that was quite good fun, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then, Phil. Uh, Yeah, good uh, good debate that you have sparked about debates in Park Ferme. Okay, then, uh, let's talk circuits just for a moment. Hi, guys, it's Tom from Leeds, a big fan of the podcast. I have two questions about the 919-800cc eras of MotoGP. Firstly, which of the tracks during that period do you wish were on the current modern day calendar? Seeing footage from races at Donington, Brno, Estoril and Shanghai make me wish that those tracks were back on the calendar in place of maybe some less exciting tracks currently on the calendar. And secondly, which top class rider from the same era do you feel struggled to fulfil their potential the most? While I still think they had good careers, Marco Melandri and John Hopkins, I feel maybe if circumstances were different, could have done even better. I was wondering if there's anyone else that stuck out more to you guys. 
thank you very much and all the best uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, best circuits that we don't have. Well, as you say, we went to Donington, Brno. That's a crying shame that it's not on the calendar anymore. Shanghai, Estoril, always a favourite. Rio, bit of a long way to go. It was a bit, it was a bit leery, and things would get nicked when you were standing there looking at them. Uh, Velcom, not an easy place to be in with nearly fifty percent unemployment, but it was ultimately a track that gave us such history that's the irony um what tracks would i want to see back estoril for me for me it's a it's a track that i've never been to and i don't actually know if you would have been to it for a grand prix either toby but given everything i've heard about it given the amazing racing we used to see there in world superbikes which i do remember and given the fact that we've got two south africans in the grid why are we not going to kailami um, that for me just cries out for a race these days. Um, more recently, though, it's Bruno. Um, I, I am so disappointed we're not going to Bruno anymore just because some people can't agree who should fit the bill for a resurface and instead of just splitting the costs between them. Um, Do a rev share. Race. Exactly. Amazing race circuit, amazing atmosphere, amazing people, uh, normally great weather, cheap to get to. Uh, you know, Bruno, since the time I joined MotoGP was the race that I recommended people go to for all of those reasons and more. Um, so, yeah, for me, Bruno is the immediate crying shame we don't go to. Yeah, it, uh, it should be sorted, that one. It should be sorted. Uh, did you see Brad Binder rode a MotoGP bike at Kailami the other day? I did, yeah, which hopefully has planted a seed in some people. Because, you know, the other thing is, the other reason why we should be going to Kailami is that what, 20% of the world's population live in Africa and we're supposed to be a world championship. Mm, yeah, yeah, that uh, that is absolutely right. And the, the Velcom race that we went to was, from a promoter's point of view, a little bit questionable. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. <clears throat> but that uh, is for other people to talk about, not us. <laughs> we don't want to get any lawyer's letters. So, uh, yeah, uh, good days, good days. Um, but ultimately, you know, just... Good people that we were seeing on the television every week, uh, Stoner, Pedroza, Rossi, Hopkins. You bring him up in the same breath as Marco Melandri. Um, which top-class rider from that era struggled the most? John Hopkins, he came into Red Bull Yamaha in the early zeros as an 18-year-old kid, all a bit wide-eyed. He was recommended by the talent scouts in America as the next big thing. And he was. He was pretty good. But, of course, ultimately, he was on a two-stroke and everybody else was on a four-stroke in 02, so struggling a little bit there. Um, got on the Kawasaki. How that didn't work out, well, I don't know the absolute ins and outs in it. But If you read his book, there's quite a bit of understanding to be gleaned from it. That and I haven't read his book, so you yeah. have. Okay, yeah. right. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything to do with what was going on on track or in the workshops or in the pit box and everything to do what was going on on Sunday nights and Saturday nights in the motorhome. Well, and, and I the, think John is big and old enough now to admit that. Well, we went to a Mizano and we got there on a Thursday and there were rumours that he'd had a bit of a big night. Um, and it was such a big night, he couldn't ride on Friday. Yeah. That's not good in this current day and no, age, is it? no. That's no. not good. Uh, so that that's that's a pretty good two day hangover. That, <laughs> um, which which is a shame. Which is a shame yeah. because he had the talent, and we saw in British Superbike twenty eleven, 
yeah. he, he he just missed out by less than the width of a tyre to Tommy. And, and the other rider from that era, a little bit later, but same nationality that we never got a chance to really see, I think, was Ben Spees. Um, ben was battered and bruised far too early um, for us to ever actually see his real potential. I would have loved to have seen a strong, fit Ben Spees on a sort of 2017 Ducati. Mm. Mm. You know, wrong era as well. Tall bloke, 800 bikes. Yeah. Made for little people, weren't they? You know, Nicky Hayden, he saw the 800 the first time and went, oh, is that it? Which which arguably, actually, if, if we're going to talk about riders who were most disappointing, um, you kind of can't not mention Danny Pedroza considering Honda built a bike specifically for him. Won his fourth Grand Prix in a 990. Yeah. In 2006. But, but, but jumped on an 800 that should have been just designed, like it, it couldn't have been designed better for Danny Pedroza. And it just didn't quite work, did it? No. Second in the championship that first year mm-hmm. to Casey Stoner. Hmm. Yes, yes. That's probably the disappointment, isn't it? One in one two five, one in 250, uh, won his first ever Grand Prix in 250 in Velcomo 4. Same day as the Valentino Yamaha win, by the yeah. way. And yet didn't get it over to the big class. Was he too small? Was he? Is there a is there a size of jockey that is just too compact? Discuss. I think we <laughs> may have just discussed it because he never came out with a championship. Um, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Anyway, uh, great questions. Great questions. Um, what were your highlights from from that, that those eras that we've that we've kind of discussed, Simon? What was it? One particular night at home watching it? Was it a race you went to? Um, it was. It was probably more than anything else. It was the antics of Valentino Rossi because I'd never really. I don't think there's ever been anyone quite like him or there wasn't up to that point in professional sports that I had watched anyway in terms of the show he he got that inherently he he was a performer as much as he was a racer and I think that that just added so much to what would otherwise have you know like we said earlier potentially been quite a dull era because he was just winning everything um but he just came along and and turned it into theater um, and the fact that he had, you know, great nemesis and great rivals to go up against him helped, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that for me more than anything is the takeaway, the sort of the Rossi show. Yeah, that 990 era for me, you know, they, they, they took the V5 apart at, at the last Japanese Grand Prix of the era. It was still two or three races to go. And it was laid out on a Friday night at, at Mategi for us all to see. And it was just a jewel of engineering. And the fact that they could just kind of cookie cutter it. And you want a V5? I would just change the bodywork. Whether or not you want West Honda Pons, you want Repsol Honda, you want Fortuna Honda, you want Movistar Honda. For me, those Movistar Honda coddlers of Gibbonau and Melandri were pretty cool. Oh, they yeah. worked so much better for me then than the latter Movistar Yamaha colours that they did a couple of years ago. Night and day, that, that really stood out. Also, when Valentino won his sixth race consecutive Grand Prix at Mugello, 
Valentino Rossi has won every single MotoGP race here at Mugello, I said as he crossed the line. And it just like he wasn't supposed to win that race or the race of the year before, but he just did it. On the day, there was 100,000 people there. The sky was blue, the Tuscan hillside, the colours, the vibrancy of the colours of a yellow Yamaha and a red Ducati. It, it just worked. It just worked. And I was very lucky to be there and very lucky to see it and um, and be able to talk about it and take these memories away. Good good days. Good days. I could talk about it for a long time. So maybe send in some more questions and we'll rack them up. And maybe when we get into the autumn, we will do another retrospective podcast with Simon and I. I think Simon's enjoyed it. He's a little bit younger than me. Or I'm a little bit older than him. I, I still don't know what it is yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's put it this way, Toby. The soundtrack to all of those days that I've just talked about was yourself and Julian Ryder. So I don't know if that makes you feel older or younger, but there you go. Well, yes, it's uh, different times, different times. Uh, yeah, well, I'd, I'd, I'd never forget we, uh, Julian couldn't do a race. So James Hayden came along, Saxon Ring. And 2010... And we jumped into the hire car at Dresden Airport, and it's about an hour's drive then to the circuit. And I can see on the motorway where we were. And James said, um, right, well, uh, we're here. Where's the producer and all the crew? And I went, there is no producer. There is no crew. The producer <laughs> is in London and will speak down our ear hole through the talk back. But at the track, it's just thee and me, mate. That's it. And he was in utter disbelief. And he said, but but how did, did you get all the people to the commentary box? And I said, that was me. Well, how did you do this? And, do and even for the other broadcasters in, in the other languages, you know, the French, the Germans, maybe the Dutch that would come to pretty well every race for the Eurosport side of things, we'd have a pre-show script and it would get emailed to me. I'd then have to get it printed and because I took it upon myself to do it, and I would then get it stapled, make four copies, give it to the Dutch, the French, the Germans. And I remember I had a blazing row once with the French because they never said thank you. So um, I didn't give it to them one Sunday morning. <laughs> and they were they were like, well, where's the script? Where's the script? And I said, well, it's on the email. It's on your email. But, you know, I just couldn't print it. I wound him up one day um, because I was doing all the work. I was, I was helping them out. But with the Germans, we had good fun. We used to share houses, early days of Airbnb kind of thing, wasn't it? Uh, Julian and I, we had 14 years around the planet and the hire car conversation. We should have been able to record that, to do a podcast. That would have been utter gold utter gold we wouldn't have been swearing we wouldn't have been slagging anybody off or anything it would have been uh, very professional but we had the best commentaries conversations in the hire car on a sunday night or on a monday morning it, they were we, we just used to talk about motor gp like you do all the time and it was so so enjoyable 20 years difference between julian and i but we had this we had the same sense of humour. Um, the odd crossword, but we learned how not to tread on each other's toes in the commentary box because having an argument in a commentary box is never <laughs> going to end well. <laughs> never going to end well. So, yeah, good days. We uh, we put a lot of work into it and uh, hopefully it all came out well. Good days. Good days. Thank you for your kind words, Simon. It means a lot. Uh, thank you for your questions. Do send your voice messages into podcasts at the-race.com. Thank you for downloading and listening in. We look forward to our next podcast next week before MotoGP gets back on track for the British Grand Prix at Silverstone in early August. Thank you, Simon. This has been Toby and Simon giving you a 
a flashback to the past of MotoGP. Speak to you all soon. Thank you. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.